0: Okay, turn in your Bibles if you would to Exodus chapter fourteen. Exodus chapter fourteen, and we're going to continue the series that we've been in, called the Gospel in the last place that you would expect to find it. Um, saw a story in the news this past week about a guy who was going out to work in his flower beds, and he found a nine-inch python hiding there in his flower beds. I can imagine that would have been the last place that he would have expected to find a python. So I story about a charity that was sifting through their donation bins and found live hand grenades uh, there in the donation bin. And I can imagine that would have been the last place they would have expected to find that. And then I saw a story about a German man who found a mummified bat in his cereal when he uh, got ready to eat it one morning. How, How much would you love that? All of those are horrific discoveries in the last place that you would ever expect to find any of those things. But, as we've been rummaging around in the book of Exodus, much to our delight, we have found that the gospel keeps turning up there in the book of Exodus over and over and over again. And I think that's not the place that most people would expect to find the gospel. The fact that the gospel keeps showing up in the book of Exodus destroys the misconception that a lot of people have that that the God of the Old Testament is fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament. Well, that's not true. In fact, finding the gospel in the Book of Exodus demonstrates the amazing consistency of the Bible, Old Testament all the way to the new. It demonstrates the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and it demonstrates the beauty of the gospel and we're going to see that again. Uh, this morning. Just a little context for you here. In Exodus chapter 14 Pharaoh has finally allowed the Hebrew slaves to leave Egypt. They have traveled many miles. They are headed back to their homeland in ancient Canaan. But as we re enter the story this morning, we find the people of Israel trapped. On one side, the Red Sea is right in front of them, and they cannot figure how they're going to get past that. On the other side, Pharaoh has changed his mind again. And now 600 chariots are storming angrily toward the Hebrews. I want to pick up the reading in verse 11. Chapter 14, let's pick up the reading in verse uh, 11. They, the Hebrews, said to Moses... Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Uh, these people, uh, the Hebrews, as they speak to Moses, are um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Oh, it's the word delusional. They are delusional. They are nuts. They are pathologically out of touch with reality because they never said anything like this stuff that they say they said to Moses. They de- never said anything like it. In fact, they said exactly the opposite. Uh, they were miserable. They were begging the Lord for salvation from the Egyptians when Moses and Aaron, sh- uh, excuse me, when Moses and Aaron showed up. And did all of the miracles that God had told them uh, to perform, the people actually bowed down and worshiped. They were thrilled to be rescued from slavery. But now they are so paralyzed by fear that they've become delusional in their thinking. Now I want you to just, I just want you to think about this for just a moment. They have just seen God do these supernatural acts. To get them out of Egypt. All of these plagues that came along. They, they, they've just seen God do all of that. Wouldn't it be reasonable. As they find themselves sandwiched. Between the Red Sea and the approaching Egyptian army. Wouldn't it be reasonable. For them to just say like. like I don't know how God is going to get us out of this mess. But I'm pretty sure he didn't bring us. All the way out here in the desert. in the desert, Just to bury us out here. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a reasonable thing for them to say. But no, there is no hope in their words. There is no God in their calculus of their situation. So what's going on here? Why are these people so delusional? Well, I want to go back to something that we said in the very first week of this series. Remember this. We said that God doesn't say to the people, He doesn't say to Moses to go to Pharaoh and to say, He doesn't say, let my people go. You remember? What does He say? There you go. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Now, what's the significance? Why the difference? What's, what's, the, what's the big deal about the difference there? Well, here's the big deal. We said this. If you are serving anyone or anything but God, you are a slave. If you are serving anything or anyone but God, you are a slave. Only when humanity finds its meaning, its significance, its purpose in him, only when you build your life around him can anyone be free. That's it. That's, that's the only way to be free. Now, some of you would argue, you would say, no, 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 wait a minute, they are free. <clears throat> they're not serving Pharaoh. Uh, they're out in the desert. They're, they're, they're free. They're free of Pharaoh. But if you notice, they're not free at all. I mean, not at all. Did you notice that? As soon as Pharaoh... Essentially what Pharaoh is doing here is he's coming after them and he's saying, Serve me or die. And as soon as he screams, Serve me or die, they become paralyzed by fear. They become delusional in their thinking. <clears throat> They're falling apart. They're panicked. You see, you, you either serve God or you live in terrible slavery. Slavery to something else. There's no other alternative. There is no in-between. It is impossible for a human being to have no Lord. It is impossible for a human being to have no master. Now, Now listen, I understand how controversial it is in our culture to say something like that. Maybe 50 to 60 years ago a pastor could have just thrown that out, said it, and everybody would have bought it, but Uh, Today, that's not the case, and I think I have to defend that, that it's impossible not to have a Lord or a Master. So let me just break it down for you. Some of you may even want to write this down. Here you go. Number one, everyone, you, everyone, you have to build your life around something. Everybody does. You have to build your life around something. Something has to give your life purpose, meaning, significance. It's just the case with everybody, okay? Second, whatever you build your life around, you are a slave to. Uh, It controls you. You you have to have whatever it is that you build your life around. In modern parlance, we would call that addiction. I saw, you know, Joan Rivers died this past week. Saw a fascinating little snippet of an interview that she uh, had done with Larry King and... Uh, Larry had asked her something about uh, performing and she made this comment. She said, performance is like a drug to me. And I thought that was very insightful. Very insightful. Because what she was saying is, I'm addicted to performing. I have to have it. Uh, I'm a performance addict. That's That's what she was saying. And some of you... You may be a control addict. You may be an approval addict. You may be a drug addict. You may be a a busyness addict. I mean, you just have to always have stuff going on. Maybe you're addicted to alcohol. Whoever, who knows? But whatever it is that you build your life around, you are a slave to. Now, if that's not bad enough, let me give you a third one. That you are a slave to anything. Whatever it is that you build your life around, you're a slave to, whether it's positive or negative. Never forget the time, it was in my 30s. I met a woman, I never thought that this could be the case, but I met a woman who was an exercise addict. Now, most people would say, well, exercise is a very positive thing. Sure, of course it is, until it's not. Until you can't stop, even when injuries begin to occur, even when it threatens your life or it threatens your family. Because like you you're going to do it at the expense of everybody. see there's no such thing. some people will say, well you know that's a positive addiction, that's a good thing. There is no such thing as a positive addiction because it controls you. you have to have it and then here's the fourth: if you ever lose what you build your life around, it will demand. Serve me or die. In other words, it will come after you, and it will pursue you, and it will attack you, and it will slaughter you. Ask a drug addict what it's like uh, to withdraw from a drug, either because, either because you know, they consciously are trying to withdraw from that drug or because they can't get a fix. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the withdrawal process, essentially. If you don't serve me, you will die. Whatever that is that you've built your life around, if you can't have it, it'll curse you, it will attack you, you will be full of self-loathing, there will be anger, depression, panic, uh, sleeplessness. Uh, ESPN the magazine did a fascinating interview with, um, it's just a big, actually it was uh, just a a huge story, I think it was like 10,000 words or so. On Jerry Jones, who, is the, who, who some of you know is the owner and the GM of the Dallas Cowboys. And I was fascinated because I'm a Cowboy fan, a thing that has become increasingly futile over the years. But among other things, uh, among the other things that Jerry Jones has built his life around, he longs to be known as a football guy. I mean, like that's become the most important thing in this man's life. And it's really weird because his team was just valued at 3.2 billion dollars. He has more money than he knows what to do with. He's 71 years old. He's known as a genius marketer, a genius visionary in business, but he's a terrible general manager. The team has gone eight and eight for the three state uh, for the last three seasons. Uh, this season if we go eight and eight, it will be an enormous success, frankly. The team has only had one playoff victory since 1996. And he said in this interview, he said this, he said, you wouldn't believe the size of the check that I would be willing to write to win a Super Bowl. And you see what he's saying? He's saying he's built his life around being a known as a great football guy. And because he can't have it, it torments him. It just eats him up, not being known as a football guy. See, that's his, that's his Lord. That's his master. And this is what the narrator of the book of Exodus is trying to teach us, that it's impossible I mean, I think if you went to Jerry Jones and said, are you free? I think he'd say, yeah, I'm free, I'm free. But what the narrator of the book of Exodus is trying to teach us is that it's impossible for humans not to have a Lord or Master. If your Lord is not God, then your Lord will be something else. It just has to be. That's just the way it is. And let me just give you a personal example of the way this works. Uh, many of you know my story. Uh, moving my family here from our home in Dallas to pastor another church here in town, and I was fired six weeks after my family moved here. Now, I'm pretty sure that if you would have asked me, before we moved, if you, if you would have asked me, Jeff, were you an addict? Are you enslaved to anything? I would have said, no, uh, not at all. One day, not long after that whole fiasco, I was driving down the Lloyd Expressway, which, by the way, can't really be an expressway because it has stoplights, but that's a whole other thing I'd love to talk about at another day part of the influence that I hope we have on the city of Evansville is maybe to be able to remove some of those stoplights long term goal long term goal okay but I'm driving down the Lloyd Expressway talking to a friend of mine on the phone and as, I, as I'm talking I, I, start to, I start to blink um, kind of trying to my vision is getting funny and uh, so I, it, and I keep I just keep trying to blink it away all of a sudden, I notice that I can't feel the left side of my body, and I'm like a, I'm like a robot that, you know, it just, it's just shutting down, and, and I'm, I'm falling to the le- to the left. Somehow, I get my car stopped uh, right there on the expressway, and right there in front of Deaconess Hospital. You know where I'm at now? Okay, so I'm going toward Newburgh and I'm, okay, Deaconess Hospital on the right, and I'm just like right there in front of it, right on the freeway. Cars are stopped, and... And, and I just, I, I go unconscious. Ambulance comes, takes me to the ER right there at Deaconess. I got EKG wires, you know, all over, coming out of me all over the place. I got blood pressure monitors. I got clips on my fingers. I got an a- IV running into me. The doctors run tests. The results come back. Uh, the doctors tell me, they say, Jeff, you know, all the tests are fine. Uh, everything's fine. Uh, no sign of a heart attack, no sign of a stroke. Uh, They say you're fine. Except I'm laying in a hospital bed with all sorts of wires coming out of me after I just passed out in my car. And I'm like, okay, so what in the world happened? And they said, Mr. Kincaid, we think you had a panic attack. Now, I'd never had a panic attack before, and I haven't had one since. What happened? Well, physiologically, people would say, well, you know, here, here's what happened. You had a panic attack. But what, what, what was it happening inside that caused that? Well, in the days and the weeks and the months that followed, I began to realize that there were about a half a dozen things that I had built my life around that all came together at that one moment on the Lloyd Expressway. Things like success and being a provider for my family. And being a great father. And being a great husband. And a few other things too. And when at that very moment, I felt like I had failed at all of those things. Every one of those masters in my life. Every one of those idols that I had. Every one of those things that I built my life around. They all came after me. And they created such anxiety that it literally shut my body down. And since then, I've been in the process of, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not there, but I'm in the process of withdrawing, repenting, getting out from underneath those slave masters, chopping those idols in my life down. And see, so you, might, you might consider yourself this morning, you might be sitting here, you might consider yourself an atheist, you might consider yourself an agnostic, you might not know exactly what you believe or even if you want to believe anything. On the other hand, you might have been a believer in Christ for decades. Like you've been in church like all of your life maybe and, and, and at some point early on, you became a, a believer in Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, both of you might be thinking, well, I'm not enslaved to anything, just like I felt. But when the bottom falls out of your life, or when you can't have that thing that you've built your life around for whatever reason that you can't have it, it will come hard. It will come hard after you. And this is the universal human condition. You can't escape it. I mean, like you aren't different than anybody else. You're not special. You're a slave to something. Likely a whole bunch of somethings, like I was, like Jerry Jones. You're a slave to something. Everybody is. Nobody's nobody's free of a Lord or Master. It's just what do you want your Lord or Master to be? Who do you want your Lord or Master to be? It's the case with everybody. And it's clear from this place in the text that the Israelites are still slaves. Even though they're out from under the thumb of Pharaoh, they're still slaves. And the question is, how are they going to get free? How will they be saved? How How will they be rescued? How will God save them from their slavery to Pharaoh or to whatever other things that you might be enslaved to? How will he save you? How will he rescue you? Want you to skip ahead in Exodus uh, to verse 21. Exodus chapter 14, skip ahead to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. This is a little lengthy, what we're going to read, but it's important, so let's let's we're gonna go through the end of the chapter here. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. That's kind of interesting, by the way, that this this the, the floor of the sea is dry. So like you would not expect that to happen, right? You would expect it to be muddy at best, but it's not, it's dry. Anyway, the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with, the water, uh, with a wall of water on the right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, and this is my emphasis if you're reading it on the screen, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, uh, in Moses his servant. I want you to notice two things about Israel's salvation here, their rescue. Okay? First thing I want you to notice is that it came by a decisive, supernatural act of God. Were it not for God, were it not for his action, uh, they would not have been rescued. They would have been dead. Literally, when they crossed over, when they crossed through the Red Sea, they passed from death because that's what it was. It was certain death. I mean, Pharaoh wasn't playing around. He was going to kill them. So literally, literally when, they, when they passed over, they passed from death into life. If it, if it wasn't for God, no one would have been saved. Okay, second thing I want you to notice is that their salvation had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with their righteousness. Seriously, these people were faithless and delusional when God decided to rescue them. And yet, God saved them all. Now, I want you to imagine for the moment that we were studying another religion or another philosophy. Under what basis would salvation occur in another religion or another philosophy? Well, Before you could know that you were saved, you would have to follow a set of rules. You would have to use the resources of that religion. You'd have to study this philosopher, know what he teaches, and then you will be saved. But you have to master it. You've got to know the rules and follow the rules, and then you'll be saved. But I want you to notice, in order to save Israel, God doesn't give them any rules or laws. He's going to give them some laws in a few chapters at at Mount Sinai, but not here, not yet. He doesn't say, here's a group of uh, laws, and if you follow those, then you, you, you can get out of the cycle of reincarnation, and uh, you can experience nirvana. Or he, he doesn't say, follow these, uh, follow these rules, and if you follow these rules, then maybe I will save you. No, he leads them out before they get to the laws. Now, this is very important. Because in other words, what we, could, what, what we would say is this: is that God's salvation is apart from obeying the law. Did you notice that? God's salvation of the nation of Israel is apart from obeying the law. In fact, they don't even have the law yet. It's even apart from their righteousness. I mean, because they were really uh, sinful and faithless. And yet God rescues them. So his salvation is apart from obeying the law. Israel's salvation had nothing to do with them or their righteous behavior. Now I can imagine... Well, let me, let me step back. Let me say this. In the same way, you see, the gospel says... And this is all an illustration of the gospel. In the same way, the gospel says that Christ offers us a salvation apart from the law. Nobody is saved because they're a good person. That's religion. That's what religion says, you see. That's very different from the gospel. It's very different from Christianity. The gospel says, by grace you are saved so that nobody can boast. I can't look at you and say, man, I was saved because I'm a better person than you. Nobody can boast. God's salvation, contrary to all other forms of religion and philosophy, God's salvation is apart from obeying the law, had nothing to do with Israel or their righteous behavior. Now, here, some people will say, well, they had to at least they had to trust him. They had to have, they had to have f- lots of faith to cross the sea. Okay, notice something. Notice something. The text says that they had to cross through the sea and there, there was like a wall of water on their right and a wall of water uh, on their left, right? Now, I can imagine... Like if it was if it was this group right here, I could imagine that there would be some of us that would go through that going awesome. I knew God was going to come through. I didn't know how, but this is awesome. Let's go, right? And then there'd be some of us that would be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we're gonna die. This I can't look. This water's gonna come down. It's gonna come down on every one of us. But I can't look. So. But they were all equally saved, right? The people with strong faith, great faith, and the people of very little faith. I want you to understand, it's not just that God saved them apart from their obedience to the law, but God also saved them apart from the quality of their faith. And here, here's, here, get this. It isn't the quality or the amount of faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us, okay? It's the object. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith that saves us. Okay, now, we're gonna, I want to close with, with, with this. I want to ask this question. Why could God save? such an obviously sinful, faithless group of people. Why could he do that apart from their obedience to the law? There's one last thing that I want you to see in this text that I intentionally skipped over, but I want to take you back and I want you to look at. And it's at verse 15. Go back to verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Okay, this is after the people are whining and complaining and griping. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Now, Is that odd? Do you think that's odd? I think that's very odd. Why does Moses get the rebuke for the rest of the people? Like Moses wasn't whining and complaining. In fact, we read it. Moses was like, you know, look, the Lord's going to come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to do it. Be, be courageous, stand firm, don't fear. I mean, that was Moses. He was like, he's, gonna, he's coming through. Why does Moses get in trouble for the rest of the people? Why, when he's acting faithfully and with great courage, does the Lord put the faithlessness of the people on him? And you know, if you, if you were to read on, you would see this happens again uh, in the book of Exodus a little later. People of Israel commit this atrocious act of faithful, faithlessness and sin. And Moses says to them, uh, he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. And then he goes back to God and he says, he says, please forgive them. What's happening? Why is this? Why is Moses getting the rebuke of their faithlessness on him? Well, it's because Moses is acting as a mediator for the people of Israel. God is putting the sin of the people on the one who is faithful. Does that ring any bells for any of you? Yeah. Moses is pointing. Moses is like a directional sign to a greater Moses, a mediator for the people who acted faithfully and who knew no sin. And yet the faithlessness and the sin of the people were put on him. What was this greater Moses' name? What was the greater Moses' name? Yeah, say that like you mean it. What was the greater Moses' name? What was the whole Bible pointing to? Who's the whole Bible pointing to? What's his name? Say it again like you really mean it. Say it like he's the hope of the world. Say it like he's the only one who's ever been raised from the dead. Say it like he died on the cross for your sins. That's right, Jesus. He was the greater Moses, the mediator between man and God, whose death on the cross, not your obedience, not your goodness, changes your eternal destiny. Jesus once said this, John chapter 5, verse 24. Go ahead and put that up. He said, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has, and that's an interesting little phrase, crossed over. Maybe a reference back here to this, the Red Sea. He is crossed over from death death to life. And there you have it in the book of Exodus. It's it's all about Jesus. Again, you see the consistency of the Bible and you see the supremacy of Jesus Christ and you see the beauty of the gospel over every other religion and over every other philosophy in the world. In that, the gospel says it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Two closing thoughts that I want to give you. For those who are here uh, this morning that have not built your life around Christ yet, you're not sure what you believe. I get that. I understand. Know that you can be here and know that there's plenty of time. We'll give you all the time in the world to seek out and wrestle with what you want to build your life around. But I just want you to know this. Please, please, Don't be so naive to think that you are free. Because you are not. You're just, you're not free. There's something that you've built your life around. You may not know it yet. But you're not free. And those things that you've built your life around... They will kill you. Jesus, on the other hand, and he's, he uses, it's interesting, he uses the language of slavery when he says this. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, notice what he says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. In other words, you know, like all of those things you've built your life around, they're coming after you hard. And they're just beating you down and you feel, you feel bogged down inside and like there's no peace and there's anxiety. You can't sleep at night. Your life is, a, is just chaos. He says, come to me and I'm gonna give you rest. Take my yoke. There's another, that's a slavery term. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unlike all of those other things that you've built your life around, Jesus, only Jesus is the Lord or Master that can really make you truly free. And then this, for those of you who are believers in Christ, I want you to hear this. Realize that you are free in principle, but not in practice. If you take a close look inside at yourself, you will realize that there are many things that you're enslaved to, that are screaming at you, serve me or die that are making your life chaotic inside and maybe making your outside life chaotic as well. Things that are destroying you from the inside out. Things that are destroying your relationships. Things that are stealing your joy. Things that are stealing your peace. And it's time to root those idols, those, those slave masters, those addictions out of your life. Maybe they're really good things. Family. Being a good person. Being a good provider for your family. Exercise. Beauty. Those are good things. Whether positive or negative. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's control. You've got to have control over everything in your world. It could be any number of things. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's approval from people. I don't know. Whatever it is, positive or negative, it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. And it's time to root those things out of your life. And let me tell you something. Here's an application. The class that we're going to offer on Wednesday nights is designed to help you do just that. To root those things out of your life. So that you can be free, not just in principle, but in practice as well. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus Christ, um, once again, we want to affirm the song that we sang this morning. You are our sanity. You are our peace. You are our freedom. Only in you can we experience true freedom. Apart from you, there is no freedom. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for those that are here this morning that may not know where they're at, what they believe. Maybe they're here today just kind of seeking and maybe they're here just on the invitation of a friend. Lord, I pray that you would pray that you would take the truths, what we talked about this morning, and that you would drive them deep into their hearts. I pray that you would communicate to them how deeply you love them and that you are the only Lord that can make them truly free. Lord, for those who are here this morning that have been believers for many, many years but have never taken a look inside and never never begin to get a sense of what some of the things are that they've built their life around that are driving them, that make them behave in ways that they, they, they don't even understand and maybe that destroy friendships, relationships around them. Lord, I pray that, pray that you would drive these truths deeply into them as well. And they would begin the process of rooting those things out, of repenting, chopping those idols down so that they can build their lives completely and totally around you and nothing else and no lies Lord Jesus Christ, again, you are supreme. You are the one who is, you're the one who the whole Bible is focused on. We see your beauty in the gospel. And so we exalt you and you alone. It's in your name we pray.